0: And so unless someone's like doing lines of KCL, I think the chances of them. <laughs> 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 that's it right.
1: What's that? Well, now we know how Josh parties. What
2: white parties. powder are, doctors, are nephrologists most concerned about? Oh, yeah. When people are starting KCL. Wow. No,
0: I just don't think that's going on a lot. Nobody parties
2: like a nephrologist parties. Whoa. Wow. Welcome to freely Filtered the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent FJC journal clubs, or not so recent FJC journal clubs. NefJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications.
3: Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Uh, We have Swap. Hey, Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at HSwapnil. I do have a couple of disclosures. Uh, A, I'm on the Hypertension Canada Guidelines Task Force, where we have. Uh, I, I was part of the work group that said we should increase potassium intake for blood pressure a few years ago, and I'm also a PI of a of a small local single center trial where we are looking at ways to increase potassium intake in hypertensive patients.
2: Look at Swap taking a victory lap even before we started doing this, <laughs> <laughs> Nayan.
4: My name is Nane Arora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I have no conflicts of interest. And although I tweet at Captain Chloride, I'm firmly on Team Potassium tonight. Jenny.
1: Hi, I'm Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist and adult nephrologist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin, and I have no conflicts of interest.
0: Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitzman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Digital Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Uh, as a millennial, I am a regular avocado toast consumer and therefore enjoy potassium, <laughs> but otherwise have no conflicts of interest related to this past trial today.
2: Sophia.
5: Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist at the Denver VA and on faculty at the University of Colorado. I have no conflicts of interest and I just had an entire avocado for dinner tonight.
2: And because we are definitely pulling for team potassium, we brought in a ringer. We have a special guest tonight. We have Paul Welling. Paul, introduce yourself.
6: Hello, Paul Welling, uh, professor of medicine and physiology. I am a MD basic scientist at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm all about potassium. Lots of conflicts of interest around that.
2: Excellent. So tonight we are talking about SAS, that is salt, substitute, and stroke study. And if anybody has had to read or write a chapter on lifestyle changes to treat hypertension, this has been a long time coming. Forever, we've been telling people to reduce sodium in their diet, but the interventions that have proven that have shown, A, just modest reductions in blood pressure with sodium restriction, and they haven't gone the extra mile where they've shown changes in blood pressure, but not reductions in outcomes. And this study was designed from the outset to show that reductions in sodium intake are going to reduce or not going to reduce outcomes. In this case, the outcome of interest was stroke all over the literature. And anybody who's writing about this, you would always see references to, well, once with the SAS is published or once the SAS is completed, and it's a five-year follow-up study. So it's been a long time coming in terms of design and finally coming out. And so when this came out last fall, it was a pretty big deal because a a lot of
3: anticipation for this study. Swap, this is an area of your interest. Do you have any uh, other further background? Absolutely. So everyone, like you said, people talk about sodium. uh, Hardly anyone talks about potassium. The problem with sodium reduction, uh, there are twofold problems. One is how do you reduce sodium? So if you look at the trials like DASH, for example, in DASH, which is the most famous study for sodium reduction... Uh, the trial for sodium reduction, what they did is the participants were actually brought in to the study center. They were fed breakfast, they were fed lunch, and they were given a pack of dinner to take home. And they did that. That's why they did it for four weeks. They couldn't afford to do it for, you know, four years. Uh, So all they could show is a reduction in blood pressure, which was very clear. Uh, But the question is, can you implement this kind of an intervention? Obviously, we cannot, right? I cannot feed my patients lunch and dinner and breakfast. So, uh, uh, you know, you just tell them, hey, eat less sodium, A, is it going to be effective? Uh, So that's one part which this study tackled in a very, very cool way as we shall see in the methods. The second part is the potassium. No one pays attention to potassium. So, uh, and again, you know, the people who have been looking at this are not surprised at all. Uh, The WHO did two systematic reviews. They are both Bananci, Abuto and BMJ. One looked at sodium, one looked at potassium. So they included all the trials and they do show, yes, sodium reduction reduces blood pressure but sodium reduction, clinical outcomes, the data is not that strong from clinical trials. On the other hand, when you look at potassium, it showed very clearly, even in 2013, that increasing dietary potassium lowers blood pressure, but also increasing dietary potassium reduces stroke from the clinical trials, even in 2013. So the potassium aspect is actually stronger.
2: I swapped in that clinical trial, Excuse me. In that in that systematic review with the sodium reduction, is that the one that shows a a fifty milliequivalent reduction in sodium had like a three point reduction in systolic blood pressure? Is that the Is that the ratio there?
3: Yeah, roughly that ratio. Yeah, exactly right. Right,
2: which is a profound reduction in sodium intake for a you know whatever two point sm- five milligrams worth of amlodipine, right? Or or <laughs> you know. A modest reduction in blood pressure.
3: Exactly. Or clothalidone, which would be even more stronger. But but the thing is like 50 millimoles is not easy to achieve. So how do you achieve that? And this is the the second cool part of this trial is is this group actually, they did a systematic review, which was published in 2020, looking at what is the source of sodium intake. Uh, and they looked across the world, not all countries, but they looked across the world and they show that, yeah, if you're in, in, in US or Australia or UK or Canada, well, most of the sodium comes from the processed food. You don't add it at the table. So if I tell my patient you know don't add sodium to when you're cooking that's useless because you know hardly any sodium is being added in your kitchen. On the other hand if you look at countries like India and China uh, and a few other places that they included most of the sodium like Brazil Brazil yeah. exactly uh, most of the sodium is added uh, when they are cooking in the in the kitchen uh, so at the household level so any intervention that targets the household would be very effective. Um, and they then they did uh, they did a pilot study showing that this can be implemented in the first place. so uh, again i'll I'll not steal Josh's thunder, uh, but that's the kind of very cool intervention they had, which could be easily implemented in places where uh, the the source of the sodium and potassium is the kitchen. Uh, But before, you know, I keep rattling about the epidemiology, perhaps we should listen
6: uh, from Paul about the mechanism, you know? Yeah,
2: I want to hear. I want to hear, Paul, any other thoughts on before we
6: dive into this? Well, there's uh, two things before we get to the mechanism. But I think a a cool part of the study is is the palatability of lowering sodium. People don't like that so much. And they really (laughs) notice it even when about a 10% reduction is kind of like the threshold of making your food taste different. And it turns out when you add the potassium, for most folks, they don't notice the lowering of sodium. The potassium takes over. A few people, very few people, uh, if they just eat potassium instead of sodium like a pure substitute, they take like a bitter or kind of metallic taste. And this seems to go away too when you mix sodium and potassium when you do the substitution. As a pilot study, actually this was published, they looked at that. So I think that's pretty cool. And it's consistent with what folks that I know in the food industry have have told me, that they have measured this, of course, and they have noted that one can make this kind of substitution without most people really even knowing that it happened. So I think that this is really going to the applicability of doing this, even for ultra-processed foods like Campbell's soup or whatever, that have tons of sodium, you could just do the replacement, and you're good. So to the mechanism... You know, obviously, lowering salt uh, has benefits all by itself. I think we know that there's plenty of different mechanisms that that drive this, including uh, reduction in inflammation, changes in the GI uh, microbiome, all of these things we know about. But as Swap said, the effects of potassium have been rather mysterious. And I I think it all goes to the way the kidney couples sodium and potassium, that physiology that we know about. So the kidney is really designed to get rid of potassium when you eat a lot, but it has to couple it to sodium somehow. And this coupling is really the essence of the mechanism. So high potassium turns off sodium reabsorption upstream of the potassium secretory site to flood that site with sodium so you can have this sodium-potassium exchange. And it it's really built into that mechanism that we call the potassium switch. This uh, It's really a natural thiazide diuretic that uh, is potassium. So potassium inhibits NCC through a complex signaling network uh, that, uh, starts with sensing potassium in the physiological range. We call it a switch because it's completely off when potassium exceeds 4.5 and completely on when potassium is around 3. So that's like right titrating right in the physiological range. And so you know, that that can explain, I think, a lot of the mysterious effects of potassium on blood pressure.
2: OK, so, Paul, I just want to I just want to make sure I understand this. So potassium rises above four point five. That throws the switch. You phosphorylate or you dephosphorylate?
6: You dephosphorylate NCC. You
2: dephosphorylate your NCC. And that no, and that's like the thiazide. You're not going to reabsorb sodium. You're going to send that sodium downstream where you're going to get exchange for sodium and potassium in the in the cortical collecting duct or those cells that have the uh, the ENaC channel.
6: Exactly. That's that's it. And we can't forget the ROMK channel and the BK channel. Those are the. Potassium.
2: Those are all, pa- but that; those are all passive potassium exchanges, dependent on the AT, the sodium potassium ATPase and the ENaC channel. Yeah. To uh,
6: try, but they're the pump, really will. exquisitely regulated as well by aldosterone and potassium and all of that.
4: I'm going to embarrass myself in front of Paul here, but there's also the other, more, f- more than usual, <laughs> more than usual, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that.
2: Um, (laughs) I just wanted to be prepared. I'm (laughs) going to put my seatbelt on.
4: (laughs) So low potassium intake, which we're going to talk about as it relates to this trial, also will cause intracellular acidosis and upregulate NHE3 channels. So you actually get more sodium reabsorption there. And it also looks like potassium may actually have a direct effect on uh, vasculature and cause vasodilation of vessels. So if you take rats and feed them a a low potassium diet, you actually see an increase in um, cerebral and renal vascular resistance. And then when you give them potassium, it reverses all those effects.
6: Right. So I was about to get to the vascular effects. There are effects of potassium upstream of of the um, DCT but a little twist uh, recently in the in mathematical modeling of the nephron that we we think you know you have the macula densa that really tightly controls sodium delivery distally and it turns out that maybe that's under the control of potassium too so most of the proximal effects are counterbalanced by probably tubular um by feedback and um uh, th- that that's the modeling but this is kind of a back and forth uh over the last uh half a decade or so
4: you're killing me cuz i i the macula densa being a chloride sensor is like what gets me up every day <laughs>
6: yeah it says captain chloride right <laughs> jeez yeah yeah well that's uh, that's Dr. important what, too you know so <laughs> you can have that
5: <laughs> Does anybody remember um, back when we did our KDGO hypertension recommendations and we were like choosing, you know, we were choosing which one we were going to go. like The draft, the draft. yeah. And you guys made fun of me because I said dietary recommendations and Swap got on there and he poo-pooed me and he said, I don't care about this. I want to give them a thiazide because it's cheap. I don't know, Swap. I mean, now you're sitting here like (laughs) trying to take the credit for the high (laughs) potassium stuff. I mean, come on.
4: No, we made fun of you because you picked it number one overall.
5: I know, for good (laughs) reason. I knew this was coming. I knew it.
3: Okay, okay. Yeah, I can't say anything to that. You're right.
6: you were right. But I I think a lot of uh, what folks are talking about is beyond blood pressure is beneficial effects of potassium on on all sorts of goodness. So I I think the low potassium that we all experience is probably pro-inflammatory, pro-fibrotic. And and so if we can raise potassium a bit, it's probably getting rid of that.
1: Wait, can you just for one minute explain why it might be pro-fibrotic?
6: I can't. I I can't explain the mechanism, but it's coming out in all of these, uh, at least mouse studies, that folks that are looking for uh, inflammation and fibrosis, uh, we we see it in CKD, apparently, that low potassium is progressing uh, CKD faster, uh, at least a decline in EGFR epidemiological studies. So yeah, I really don't know the mechanism. I don't get it.
2: And in terms of this mechanism, this potassium switch, well, Dr. Welling, what was your role in, the, in this?
6: He described uh, it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, so we focused on uh, the discovery of the kinase that phosphorylates NCC Uh, We and others uh, discovered that in knockout studies. And then we went a step further by uh, twisting the kinase so that it was always locked on in a mouse. And then we could do a lot of fancy things to prove when the switch is locked on, now you basically have a gain of function in that pathway. And now uh, you are always hypertensive but potassium can't now shut it off. Well, it really told us that the switch was the thing that is driving the blood pressure response to potassium. So that that's our piece of it.
4: These are, these are the, Wink, the Wink 1 and 4 kinases? Is that the main ones you're talking about?
6: So this is part of it. A potassium sensing channel signals to the Wink kinases. You might remember those are the kinases that are mutated in Gordon syndrome, or we like to call it familial hyperkalemic hypertension. Other people like to call it pseudo-hypoaldosteronism type 2. And that disease, those kinases are locked on, and that stimulates NCC constitutively. So you basically get the same activation of NCC and hyperkalemia.
4: So I thought... I thought these were under chloride control, too. You're ruining my whole existence here.
6: They are under <laughs> con- uh, chloride control. Okay, so uh, we're good. Chloride binds uh, to the kinase in an inhibitory manner. And so it, when chloride binds to the kinase, it inhibits the kinase. And what happens is potassium works through the potassium channel, so that as potassium goes down in the blood, it hyperpolarizes the membrane and it drives chloride out of the cell. And uh, this turns on the kinase, so it activates in that way. So it's, um, I didn't want to get into that because it just makes everybody's head spin. But uh, (laughs) since you asked. Consider head spun. (laughs) Okay.
3: Yeah, but if if you just want to know more about it on his Twitter profile, I think that's his, he's got a tutorial and that's his pinned uh, tweet. Uh, which goes through, you know, all the, the research and the explanation. Yeah, it's pretty
6: switch yeah. And I'll, I'll just it give good uh, good. one other plug. David Ellison and I have a nice review out on this uh, last uh, year, late last year in New England Journal of Medicine. So please take a look at that.
2: Excellent. Okay, Josh, hit us with some methods.
0: Sure, my pleasure. So this SAS trial is a really interestingly designed trial because it's a cluster randomized trial, and I feel like I was not familiar with cluster randomized trials before I saw this one. So in a normal, simple randomized control trial, a bunch of people are fed into the trial and then randomized to groups control or intervention by some random number generated. For the SAS trial, they felt like that would be challenging as a design because it would be hard to randomize two people in the same household. To different arms of the trial. You couldn't imagine having mom salt and dad salt that were different for each one. And so instead, they did a cluster randomized trial where an entire village in rural China was randomized either to intervention, which was 25% potassium, 75% sodium chloride salt, or control 100% sodium chloride salt distributed to that village that was then supplied to the enrolled households for free. So by enrolling about thirty to forty people in each of six hundred different villages in rural China, they were able to enroll about twenty thousand people in this enormous open-label cluster randomized controlled trial.
2: People were aware which group they were in. They, they were. were not blinded. They weren't just given salt or study salt. They were given specifically low-potassium right. salt. Right. They, they knew, be knew low that sodium they were salt. in
0: the potassium-sodium salt mix or the sodium salt mix, I think in a- As was everybody in their village, right? If right. The,
2: Everybody in their village is in the same arm.
0: And I think in a traditional open label trial, we worry about like the effects of knowing what group you're in or knowing you're going to do more stuff because you're in the study arm. I think it's tough to make that same kind of argument in a five-year long trial of diet. It's one thing to like be on your best behavior for a couple of days or a couple of weeks because you know you're taking the fancy pills as opposed to the placebo pills. But day in and day out for five years, I feel like my best habits can't last for five days. So I think it'd be really hard to maintain whatever difference we attribute to the open versus blinded nature of the study to that particular aspect of the study over this period of time.
3: Exactly. So so you you hit the nail on the head, right? So if you're doing a very clean efficacy trial, you know, it, it's like a drug trial, right? Where you have a placebo and everyone's blinded. Uh, that's wonderful, but but to to implement that, you know, in a in a behavior change setting, uh, how A is how do you do it, and B is how do you implement it, right? Like so, dash was very clean, as we said, but you cannot implement something like that because you can't feed people. So this was a pragmatic trial. If it is successful, that means it could be translated into practice, right? So even by doing it such a messy sort of open label, and you know, no one's watching what you eat and and what you are what you're doing. If they can show a benefit, if they can show an effect, it's truly going to be there.
1: Then the uh, the authors say something that they actually encourage the salt substitute group to use the same amount or less. So do you think that actually ends up, you know, confounding results?
4: But I think they counselled the salt the non-intervention group to also reduce. Now, they said to do no, it as is right. a normal. Right. Jenny's,
2: at- it was a specific part of the intervention was it, people in the salt substitute group. Remember, the goal of the is to see if less salt, less sodium is going to reduce outcomes. So telling them to have, here, this is the special salt, and we'd like you to use less of it. We don't want you to like increase the amount of you're using. And I think is fine, right? You're trying to get separation between these two groups. Right, And so if a behavior component is part of it, I think that's okay.
0: And I think you would probably counsel the control group the same, right? Like, we're giving you salt. Well, they were, speci- they were specific. They said,
2: at the very beginning, they said, we recommend that everybody eats less salt. And then they were like, and we didn't say anything else ever again. They said, like, it's <laughs> just to do it, like, how just to use it as they normally would is
1: what I thought I had.
4: No, they, they said they pr- general health advice about stroke prevention, including reduced salt intake, was provided at trial commencement but then specifically
2: not reinforced thereafter. But again, I, I don't have a problem with that, right? We're trying to get separation in these groups in terms of sodium intake, and it's mostly going to be the change in the type of salt, and maybe there's going to be a small behavior component. There wasn't probably, but I, I think that's okay. Anybody else have any concerns, share Jenny's concerns? No, but and to Josh's
4: point, it's five years. So, you know, people are, even if they change behavior for a couple weeks, weeks, it's, it's going back to what they were normally doing. Yeah. Onward, Josh.
0: Okay. So moving on to inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, they were really looking for a high-risk pool of patients who were likely to have some sort of ASCVD event, particularly stroke, over the time period over, which, over the five years. And so they included men and women over the age of 60. 60. And those people either had to have had a previous stroke or have uncontrolled hypertension, which was defined as either having a blood pressure over 140 despite being on a blood pressure medicine or have a systolic blood pressure over 160 off of an antihypertensive medicine. I felt like they were pretty liberal in terms of their exclusion criteria with one exception. Uh, people who had a life expectancy less than six months were excluded from the trial. Um, people who were on potassium sparing agents, things like spironolactone or amiloride, were excluded from the trial. Uh, I think because of the risk of hyperkalemia, I think most people would probably exclude them from this kind of a trial. And then they make this weird aside about excluding people with serious kidney disease. And I think this is the place where probably all of us had that question of, what does it mean to have serious kidney disease? And I really looked deep into the methods and I really couldn't find a definition. There really isn't one for serious kidney disease. When I presented this in Journal Club, I showed a big picture of a sad clown. I'm wondering what kind of funny kidney disease it is that we take care of here. In thinking about who we would think about as a, as a population to whom these results could be applied, patients who have CKD who are coming to see us for CKD are probably excluded from, the, from this type of a trial.
5: So Josh, what they said in the conclusion was interesting because they said they were excluded if they reported serious kidney disease, but there was no biochemical screening for mm. any sort of kidney, kidney disease. So if they reported it, they were excluded.
0: So maybe half my patients would be excluded because I feel like half of them don't even know they have kidney disease.
3: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so in table one, they don't have creatinine. So it was a very pragmatic trial. I suspect, you know, people who had symptomatic kidney disease or who were on dialysis. Otherwise, you know, milder CKD or even moderate CKD would have gone in if they weren't aware.
2: Honestly, the only thing worse than putting the methods after the results like they're doing in some of these journals is not including table one in the article. Like, is there a paper shortage? Are we, why are we not putting table? Why is that in the supplementary? It's so...
0: We know Joel's not going to be in the supplement. Like, he's just going to realize there are some people who are on these trial. I assume they look like each other. I don't know anything about their clinical care.
3: Yeah, so it's it's, it's just to make you open the supplement, Joel. It just kills me.
2: Okay,
0: okay. Onward, okay. onward. In terms of outcomes, so the study is these salt... Substitution and stroke study. So, the primary outcome was looking at the rates of strokes over the period of five years. There were also secondary outcomes looking at a composite of major adverse cardiovascular events, and a secondary outcome looking at all cause mortality, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the results section. And then, given the use of a potassium supplement, the major safety outcome that was being looked at was the rates of clinical hyperkalemia. And that's defined as people who were sent to a hospital because of a symptom of hyperkalemia and then found to be hyperkalemic as opposed to some kind of screening for hyperkalemia, which was not really present in this population over this period of time.
2: Are you surprised that they went with a stroke as a primary outcome? Like, why, not, why would you not use just a composite outcome of all cardiovascular disease? Why, why just stroke specifically? I mean, stroke is the thing that's most
4: associated as an outcome with sodium reduction, et cetera, is, is a stroke outcome. And these exactly. patients had prior strokes.
3: As Nayan said, the relationship of, from observational data, not from trials, if you look at blood pressure and clinical outcomes, for some outcomes, it's a U-shaped or a J-shaped curve. For stroke, it's linear, right? You go down to, you know, 100, almost down to 100. Uh, it still is linear, going down from 115 to 100 will still you, give you reduction in stroke. So that's one. And second is, you know, as, as uh, the uh, 2013 systematic review had shown, there already was a signal from the meta-analysis showing that if you increase potassium intake, there is a reduction in stroke. So if you had to pick one outcome which was going to be positive, stroke would be it. Apart from all this, I think, I'm pretty sure in China, uh, stroke is very high. People talk about the stroke belt in the in the US. I, I think in China the um, uh, stroke is way higher than other cardiovascular disease for for whatever reason. I think even in Japan, um, stroke is huge. Uh, so they, they thought they would get a lot of events. I'll tell you why, because they got patients who have a history of stroke that are running around with blood pressures of one hundred and sixty, and they're eating 15 no grams treatment grams
0: of salt a day. It's insane.
2: It's funny though. Well, we'll get to the, we'll get to the results. I was actually I was expecting higher twenty four hour urine sodiums than they actually found, but I am not going to take anything away from Sophia.
4: Although, they, for, to, to, to what Swab said, the, I, I don't know if I buy the U-shaped curves. It's you know flawed yeah. methodology, so I, I don't think we yeah. need to advertise that we believe in U-shaped curves with low sodium.
6: Totally yeah. agree with that. There is no U-shaped curve for any outcome. It's a flaw. I, I would say rather than
0: stoking this fight about whether sodium reduction... Or potassium supplementation is more important. The trial here is really a test of the combo intervention of sodium reduction and potassium supplementation at the same time. You don't get to say that one of them matters more or less based on this trial because it's the combo intervention that we're testing. It may be kind of a moot point, right? If the only way we can get people to eat less salt is to give them some salt flavor with potassium, that's fine.
4: I think that's the point, right? We don't need to argue about it because we already know that low sodium and higher potassium are both associated with better outcomes. That's not the that's not the argument. The argument is how do you implement this
0: in a large number of people and show improved hard outcomes?
2: Okay. Anything else in the methods? I'm sure there is. I
0: think those were the major highlights that I want to hit on. I don't know if there are other things that Swap is really chomping at the bit to talk about.
2: No power analysis, Josh? No power analysis, I really? I can't
0: tell. Someone asked me for help on an ANOVA today, and I'm like, you're talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> so okay. sorry.
2: Okay. No, wrong.
0: Okay. Yeah. You got to ask someone else.
2: Big old study. Let's we'll just
3: leave it at that. They, they must have a lot of power. There were 20,000 people. Five years. Can go into the power analysis, but it won't make a lot of sense because A, it's a cluster RCT, right? The, the stats become more complicated because it's not like an individual patient level. Analysis. So you have to look at the intra-cluster coefficient because, for example, you know if if people in the same cluster are going to behave similarly, um, so you have to account for that and, and and actually reduces your power. It's not if you had a twenty thousand patient individual patient RCT, it would have greater power than this study had. So so you know it's it's all those kind of messy things. Uh, but these guys know what they are doing and and they have done a you know it's a good power, uh, good sample size. We're going to go with
2: not their first rodeo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia, were there any results?
5: Mm, there were. There were some results. Almost 21,000 participants were recruited from 600 villages. As you know, it was cluster randomized. The salt substitute had 10,504, and that was 300 villages. And the regular salt group had 10,492 participants, also 300 villages. 4172 patients died in that time frame
2: which is 20%, right? They had 20% mortality in their cohort which is like not including their primary outcome which is stroke but I mean that's that's a lot of dead people.
5: They were it was a sick population.
2: It was a profoundly sick population, that's right. As as long as you kept this <laughs> as long as you have a supplement cuz you can't find that in the primary article. <laughs> okay.
1: Speaking of supplement, one interesting detail that, was, that I came across is in each group, over 70% of the people were, had primary school or lower education.
2: I totally clued in on that also. I thought that was super interesting. So what do you think that number is for the United States? Well, lower than that. In the United States, 91% of people are a high school graduate or more. Now it's kind of weird because that's that's people over the age of twenty-five. And I'm sure if you look at in the United States people over the age of sixty, the rate of advanced schooling would be go would go down. But I would but it did to me emphasize how different rural China is to my kind of sense of what people are like. It is a very different world.
3: And and just to belabor that point, the study was funded by the NHMRC, which is like the Australian NIH. Uh, the study was run by the George Institute, uh, which is in Sydney, but they didn't do the study in Australia. They did it in China because, you know, th- there's no point in giving Australian people a potassium substitute, right? Because their food comes from the food industry. Uh, so, so there's a reason they targeted rural China, uh, because you, you need different interventions based on the you know population. And this is the intervention that would have worked in rural China, and it will not work in urban America. But anyway, we'll come to that later.
2: Sophia's like, I've gotten two sentences out. <laughs>
3: okay. You, you, can, you, didn't, you can edit us all out, right? Like it's-, it's, it's
2: Now in it's under control. Final cut. Sophia's got final cut here. So who knows what's going to be in there?
5: <laughs> so the overall mean follow-up was 4.74 years and the median I think was 5.12 years. Mean age was 65 and a half years for almost 50% were female. 73% had a history of stroke, and 885 carried a diagnosis of hypertension. The mean blood pressure was 154 over 89, and 79% were on at least one blood pressure medicine. The mean 24-hour sodium excretion for this population was 4.3 grams, or 187 millimoles, and the mean 24-hour potassium excretion was 1.4 grams, or 36 millimoles.
2: I will tell you those numbers look very similar to the numbers I get in my resistant hypertension patients. When I do twenty four hour urine sodiums and potassiums, it's usually about one hundred and eighty millimoles of sodium and about forty millimoles of potassium. I was kind of, I was like, oh, I was expecting the numbers to be kind of off the chart high, and they they just weren't.
4: Well, and that it's important because that potassium is like a third to a fourth of the recommended
2: intake, and that's maybe why. Well, no, we're we t- s- yeah. But I mean, like nobody reduces their sodium to the recommended of intake. Nobody increases their potassium to the recommended intake. You know, the recommended intakes are way higher than the average potassium intakes. So, yeah, I was just, I was just like, oh, that's kind of what I'm familiar with seeing.
6: I, I was a little bit surprised not by the sodium, but by the potassium. So it's about a half of what we consume in the United States. And that's nan's data. So I mean, uh, you know that that really is what we eat. So I think there maybe your patients, urban Detroit food desert. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I yeah. think maybe that's what you would expect, and I, that's really relevant. I, I'm interested to hear that. But for most of us, we're still taking in too too little potassium, but it's more than than these guys for sure.
5: So. Moving on to more post intervention data in the salt step substitute group, the sodium excretion was reduced by 5.2 millimoles and potassium excretion was increased by 20.6 millimoles, and then mean systolic blood pressure decreased by 3.3 millimeters of mercury in the salt substitute group. So the primary outcome, defined as acute disturbance of focal neurologic functioning resulting in death or symptoms lasting in more than 24 hours, a.k.a. stroke, um, the SALT substitution group had significantly lower rates of stroke. And it occurred in 29.1 events per 1,000 person years compared to 33.7 events. And I think the, the risk reduction was 0.86 with a confidence interval of like 0.77 to 0.96.
2: Yeah, I, I looked up the U.S. stroke rate is 2.5. So, you know, again, this is a hypertensive population with a previous stroke. So, you know, it's going to be higher, but 10 times higher than the background rate in the United States.
3: Yeah. And and you talked about the sodium and potassium uh, intake. Uh, so that's that wasn't measured in everyone, unfortunately, uh, which I can understand, right? To do 20,000, 24 hour urine uh, multiple times would be very uh, would expensive. Would keep a lot of
0: nephrologists in business. That would be great.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, but uh, so it was just a sub like they had a few hundred people who did those 24-hour urines uh, and the blood pressures Uh, but interestingly you know they did the 24-hour urine uh, but they didn't do a blood test for potassium in that subset Uh, so they don't report serum uh, potassium anywhere Uh, apart from like Josh said they did look at uh, anyone who got sick enough to go to the hospital for hyperkalemia Uh, but while they were doing the 24-hour urine you know why not break them and get a serum potassium.
0: I think it's because if you look, you might find things you don't want to see, right? Like if you're looking at all these serum potassiums, you're going to find some high ones and you're going to find more of them in the salt substitute group than you would in the non-salt substitute group. So as long as people are feeling fine, you don't really want to go looking for it if you want this intervention to pass.
2: I mean, 20% of people died. They weren't feeling so
0: fine. <laughs> but we didn't have a chem panel on most of Died with a normal potassium, as far as we know. That's like the mark of an excellent medicine intern is that all your patients die with the normal potassium. Uh, Okay, Sophia, did you have any more results?
5: I can summarize them or I can get more uh, granular. Our MACE or our major cardiovascular events were also reduced 49.1 versus 56.3, similar across um, death from all vascular causes and non-fatal acute coronary syndrome. Um, This did not carry over with non-fatal stroke. And then the salt substitute also favored all exploratory outcomes of death or death from any cause.
2: Yeah. And to me, death from any cause is super important in this study, which, is a, which doesn't have a close touch on anybody. Like they're, they're six months after this patient, You know, when the patient doesn't show up for their six-month visit, then they have to go hunting to find out what happened to the patient. The fact that you know, and who knows, you know, are they trying to these major adverse cardiac events? Is it really an unstable angina? I think those are really hard to pick out. But total mortality showing a big difference there, and it was it was actually a pretty significant
3: delta there. I think is really powerful for this type of study. Exactly. So even if there was hyperkalemia, it didn't kill more people.
0: And I think what's really impressive is that they literally tracked down every single person in this trial and figured out what they were alive. Yeah, they were the really good. Years. Like, I feel like I'm used to a couple of, like, dropouts somewhere. We don't know if they lived or died, so we figured they were probably okay. But this is a trial where it's like, literally, we figured out if they were alive or dead in five years. Yeah.
2: No, they got they caught everybody. It was really impressive. I agree.
5: So I'll just finish out saying that there was no dif- difference in the clinical hyperkalemia. I think that we don't quite know how to interpret that completely because it is clinical, and they had to get sick or die, um, and then they would discover hyperkalemia. So- But you know, regardless, that's an interesting outcome because they really—I really don't think that they didn't exclude most patients that were at risk for hyperkalemia. Only those that literally came in and said, "I have severe kidney disease." Other than that, everyone else was included.
3: And that's the thing, right? As nephrologists, most of the patients we see, we tell them don't eat potassium. Uh, So it's, it's this is this study is sort of you know maybe we have to switch our brain if we are going to tell people. Of course, we don't tell hypertension patients eat less potassium, uh, but it doesn't come naturally, right? I have all these antibodies to saying eat more potassium uh, that I have to suppress uh, uh, and, and let people say, hey, you know, eat more potassium, which is why we are, you know, this this serious renal impairment thing keeps coming up.
4: But and I think we have to be very clear that I think the the association of dietary potassium and hyperkalemia is very different because the dietary potassium we eat isn't potassium chloride; it's you know. Other forms of potassium, which have uh, which which help your um, acid base status actually and help mitigate any effects of, of, of potassium. This is potassium chloride, which is very different. This can raise your serum potassium levels.
0: Yeah, I, I, I want to just back up, Nayan, that like I've stopped really counseling most CKD patients on potassium restriction because the amount of potassium in their diet is unlikely to significantly change their serum potassium level unless it's extreme. And so unless someone's like doing lines of KCL, I think the chances of them. <laughs> really- <laughs> that's
2: it What's that? Well, now
1: we
0: know yeah. how Josh well, what parties. What white powder are doctors,
2: are nephrologists most concerned about? <laughs> oh, yeah, when people are starting KCL. Wow. No, I just don't think that's going on a lot. Nobody
3: parties like a nephrologist parties.
2: Wow. Josh, when you were in Vegas, that
4: wasn't KCL, buddy. I'm just telling you now.
0: <laughs> but I think because the. The correlation is so weak, and because so many healthy for you foods have potassium in them, I would rather people focus on a healthy diet than worry
3: about a lab number that I can I can take care of with more diuretic. Exactly right. Uh, the uh, if, if you are done with the results, they did a modeling study. Uh, it's published in BMJ uh, around the same time. Uh, and what they did is because I knew they were expecting this, right? Like if you say, "Hey, we did this in a trial, and now we want this to be done by everyone." how can we make sure that kidney patients and dialysis patients are not consuming this salt uh, once it's out into the open and you know, people are selling this potassium salt in the market. So they've done a very cool modeling study uh, where they looked at this and, and their, their point is that even CKD patients mostly die of cardiovascular disease. So if they increase potassium in their diet, you will actually see a reduction in cardiovascular death in CKD patients, which will be greater than Any increase in deaths from hyperkalemia. And of course, this is just the CKD, which is a very, very small subpopulation, right? If you're talking about implementing this in the overall population, most people in the world don't have CKD. So the benefit in those people is going to be huge uh, and it will be dwarfed by whatever increase you will see in hyperkalemia. It's there, though. It does make me a little bit uncomfortable to say, hey, you know, there is a net benefit, there is a little bit of increase in deaths. Uh, but there is a huge decrease in in uh, deaths from the uh, blood pressure reduction or what have you uh, because of potassium. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: I got a question. I got a question. So uh, Paul already pointed out how remarkably low these people' average 24 hour urine potassium was, and and we saw how modest the delta in the potassium was, was an additional 15 or 20 of potassium.
3: Right, right. So so the absolute is 20, but as Nayan pointed out. If you look at it in terms of percentage,
2: as a percentage, it's rather profound. But if you took the same intervention, which presumably would have the same delta in terms of milliequivalents of potassium, and maybe even less because we eat so many processed foods, and we have a background of a higher potassium intake, we may not see nearly this uh, effect size, which you know took a profoundly sick population and four years of follow-up to get a significant, but you know, we're not talking about an SGLT2 level effect size here.
3: True, true, but as uh, it came out in the chat, and I think Paul would know more about this, is that there are two things that are also going on. Uh, so one is the FDA actually put out a guidance, I think it was in 2020 or uh, or 2021, saying that they will, be al- they will allow people to sell potassium chloride as a potassium salt. Uh, so somehow if you say this thing contains potassium chloride, People think about it as some kind of a chemical, right? Uh, uh, but if they call it potassium salt, it's kind of, you know, it's a natural product or something like that. So so that's one thing the FDA has allowed them to do, saying, hey, you can call it K-salt rather than call it potassium chloride.
0: I think if you ask the average person in America what potassium chloride is, like, number one, they're not going to know. But number two, it's like it's part of that cocktail they give people is like the lethal injection, yeah. right? <laughs> the right, lethal right, injection, right. That's, that's right. it right. their heart. And so, like, I think the rebranding as potassium salt is actually like a reasonably big deal.
4: Mm -hmm. Although Mm -hmm. we still have to be realistic. This was pointed out before. Remember, 71% of the salt that's in our food is added before it gets to people's houses, right? So, you know, whatever they're adding at home is affecting a tiny proportion of people that are cooking at home.
0: But this is a labeling that could be done on processed food if but, but the right. yeah, the
4: FDA would have to get involved and the companies would have to buy into this
2: right and i there's probably other well that's the, that's what Sawap was saying yeah. is that the that the FDA did get involved and the FDA said this is cool right but
5: We're, they're yeah, talking about k salt they are not talking about implementing it in suit in food as like folate and iron that we put in cereals but i mean right, i think right, there's right, probably right. still some concerns about implementing it just based on our high our higher
3: risk populations exactly so so what what apparently is being happening behind the scenes and again you know i have no knowledge of what industry is doing i'm just going on secondary stuff that i've read is that as, as paul pointed out you know when campbell's soup i remember this actually happened so they have sold low salt soup uh the sales of the low salt soup tank right because people they they associate low salt as in poor taste and no one buys these things. So what they're doing now uh, or what they're planning to do, or maybe they're doing it already stealthily, is they're doing it without telling you. Uh, so they're just, you know, changing stuff behind the scenes. And they are, and, and FDA is allowing that. And they have looked at, um, you know, in muffins, if you do this and if you have bran and you have this potassium added, then people do not pick it up, pick up the taste as being different. So those kind of studies apparently are being done by food industry. And again, I have read, you know, journal journalists writing about it. I'm sure the food industry is very, they are not going to let their trade secrets out about what they are actually doing, because if it comes out that, hey, Campbell has done this, their sales may actually drop. But shouldn't it just be on the nutrition information? Exactly. So it, so it, it would be there if, if it happens. But, you know, you have to compare with the label from five years ago and now.
6: But uh, sodium is on the label, but uh, potassium isn't, so you have no idea, you know, uh, uh, about that. But just to agree with Swap, I mean, I know firsthand the food industry is—it's a balance between what's palatable, what's going to sell, and maybe ten years ago people didn't like the low sodium business, but now as people become more health conscious, you know, there's a sell and maybe even the potassium substitute will be a cell. But there has to be huge buy-in by everybody here. There is concern about hyperkalemia amongst different uh, groups. Uh, AHA, I know, was concerned about this in their patient population, so I, I think we need better data on this for sure. There is a trial going on in CKD patients to look at potassium supplementation. Uh, Ewat Horn is doing this. They have a pilot that's published that shows that you know the risk of hyperkalemia is, as Josh pointed out, is really really little.
2: But Paul, what, what type of what's the intervention there? Just because because I think Nine's point was extremely good. Is that Potassium chloride is different than the potassium phosphate the potassium citrate that's in most natural yeah, foods. Yeah,
6: I think this is you know a, this that is a is? potassium supplement. So I think it's potassium chloride. I'm pretty sure it's potassium chloride.
1: Yeah, so in terms of potassium tracking, I'm looking, I'm opening up my, um, my food app, health app where I'm tracking my macros. So macronutrients in terms of proteins, fats, and everything. And when you're logging in your food or scanning labels, they do actually record potassium. So for my recipe for beef pot roast, apparently it has 188 milligrams of potassium or projected based on the ingredients. So I don't know if that's also another avenue by which there could be behavior modification because when I input food, they'll say, oh, you know, you're exceeding your sodium intake for the day or to recommend a sodium intake. I wonder if they'll start flagging potassium and kind of interesting to think about.
5: Misses a large percent of our population. Oh, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think <laughs> from this room, I don't, I think I'm the only one using this app and actually tracking my macros. But
5: She just
2: called me fat, didn't she? She called all of us fat.
3: <laughs>
2: Jenny I, I see what you're doing there
3: but it's i mean it, the point is there that uh this this exact intervention cannot be implemented in north america right so it's it's not directly useful for us but if if the food industry takes this to heart and changes something uh then potentially it's uh, it's useful. Uh, and those things are not in our hand. Uh, I I don't know how to influence industry. Uh, I, you know they are looking at it. I don't know how seriously they are. But if, if if this is implemented in India and China and Brazil, there is a huge public health impact. There is no question about that. And, and the salt is available, right? As it came up in the chat, people looked up. These kind of salts are available on the on the shelves. Uh, they are probably a little bit more expensive, but you know you're talking about a huge difference. It
0: means it's like. Five bucks for uh, one pound of new salt, the KCL you can get on Amazon, as opposed to like a dollar or less for regular iodized sodium chloride for a pound. But it's, you know, it's it's quite a bit more expensive. But I, I suppose if you if you made it to scale and made, you know, swap special salt mix, uh, you can make it for, for less than that.
4: The ones you can buy that you're looking up, what's their um, percentage? Like here is only 25% KCL, 75%. Sodium chloride.
0: is all KCL, isn't it? Yeah. So
2: I know Morton has two products. They have one that's 50 50 and they have one that's 100% KCL.
4: So does that cause issues with um, iodine? I mean, that's part of the reason, right? It was with uh, iodized salt. I don't know. I don't that's know. That's what I would
2: suspect. I would suspect they're both iodized. Iod- 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 iodized. iod iodized. 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 No, iodized. I don't think that's right.
3: Iodized, not iodinized. We didn't make you say generalizability.
2: Because there's nothing generalizable about this study at all. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, I can't get over. I mean, to me, I'm very skeptical that with, you, with people starting with blood pressures in the 150s with very few pharmacologic interventions, essentially people just kind of waving their hands at blood pressures in 150 patients who've already had stroke. I don't know if you still get the same benefit in our patients where we have everybody on diuretics, right? Of the people being treated, only 10% of them were on diuretics. And uh, is a diuretic as good as the salt restriction? I would think that that would be at least worthy of a trial, right? We see pretty profound Mortality and stroke benefits when you put people on a thiazide type diuretic and almost
0: nobody was in. The, on yeah, that I think both points pretty well taken here. I think like the blood pressure was uniquely poorly controlled in this group with the average blood pressure in the one fifties. I think that the choice of antihypertensives that these folks are on, we didn't really get into in a ton. or 40% of people in the trial are on calcium channel blockers. About 10% are on diuretics, about 20% on ACE or ARBs. And I feel like if we were really trying to pick what would be our best medicine for blood pressure control, what would reduce the risk of stroke, and what would raise potassium, calcium channel blockers probably wouldn't make that list, right? It would be diuretic. For the, the salt reduction, you could add an ACE or ARB to bring up some potassium. You could think about a potassium sparing diuretic or something.
5: What you guys are ignoring here is that we're, we're being a little bit realistic right now, is that potassium has a role from a vascular perspective as well. And actually, with our diuretics that we grab for, our thiazides, our loops, those are depleting our potassium sp- stores. So I don't know if that's really true. We don't know, but...
0: I feel like if you started someone in an ACE, though, you could give them the same amount of potassium Mm. in their body and help them hang on to it, as opposed to mess with their salt a ton. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking...
4: I think we also misunderstand everything that sodium does, right? We, We measure sodium in a specific way, but we know that sodium deposits in bone and interstitium and skin and all these other places affects the microvascular environment through the endothelial cells and vascular inflammation. And so I, I think that there's things that are happening with sodium that we're not able to measure. And so we don't understand them well.
1: Going back to the patient population, I mean, if they're in the countryside and I don't know what their access is to lab draws and healthcare on a regular basis, it seems like, you know, calcium channel blocker seems to be the lowest maintenance type of medication, right? So it kind of makes sense if I were countries off. That's,
2: that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. When you have don't have access to a biochemical lab, you're gonna reach for the drug that, that you doesn't need, doesn't require biochemical monitoring. Yeah, that's a good point.
3: And, and talking about uh, blood pressure control in the US also, you know, it's getting worse. Uh, Paul Muttner had this paper from Enhance, uh, I think it was Enhance data, showing in 2020, in the last five years, BP control has actually got worse. And they use 14090, right? They didn't say, oh, AHA has dropped it and that's why it's worse. Using a standard cutoff of 14090, blood pressure control has steadily worsened uh, year over year and somehow since 2014 or 2015. I don't know why. It's a combination of reasons, but it seems to have slowly become worse. And I'm sure it's much worse with COVID and you know the lack of doctor visits in the last two, three years. So if you had a cheap, effective intervention, which is at the public health level, why not do it, right? Uh, the, the difference, as we have talked about, is how do you do it? The, selling the potassium salt is not going to be good for us. But if the food industry does it, why not?
6: Well, I think there's a huge population to target here. And we talked a little bit about it with Joel's patients that, you know, he said that their potassium intake is exactly what it is in rural China, uh, whereas the rest of the United States uh, is taking double that. It seems to me that that's a place to target where it could have enormous benefit. And we know the problem, you know, we know the problem is access to healthy food. And so I think, you know, instead of reaching for a pill, we could treat a whole lot of people Just by putting up some supermarkets and neighborhoods that don't have them uh, and teaching them how to cook beans and eat potatoes and things. And so, you know, I think the intervention at a public health level is possible, but it's gonna take a lot. You know, we all like talked about are you gonna give a pill to make your patients hypokalemic and, you know, exacerbate the problem? I really favor this intervention idea and thinking about how to do it here.
2: The EU uh, really kind of looked at, to try to reduce mainly sodium intake, and they looked at a bunch of different interventions, and there was a lot of laws passed. And For some reason, the country Portugal comes to mind, and I know that they limited the amount of salt and bread, and they got industry support to kind of reduce sodium. I don't know how successful it's been, but there was a kind of a broad-based support to kind of a, attack it in the way that it would need to be attacked, where you don't go to the salt shakers because we don't use those. That's not the major source of sodium, but they were going to people that were actually producing the food, the processed food, and attacking it at that location. And honestly, I think now with this data on potassium chloride, this is this is really, you can now come there and say, hey, you already had the palatability test. You showed that this works well if you mix it. And now we have the other piece of that is that it really supports their health.
6: Absolutely. They had a follow up paper that just came out in circulation, too. This may be really difficult to relate to us, but they showed uh, there's an economic benefit as well. So, I mean, this is, this is on the SAS, the yeah. follow
2: up to the yeah. SAS trial.
6: You know, we pointed out how much uh, new salt is on Amazon. I mean, it was not quite as steep of a difference in China. Between potassium chloride, potassium sodium chloride, but you know something to think about too. It's probably uh, makes sense economically. We've gone
2: over the results. We've gone over discussions. Any other points that we that anybody wanted to make on this, or we kind of can we kind of wrap this up? Is there any? I feel like we kind of talked about the high points.
3: Yep. Yeah, and, and as Nayan and others have said, I think Josh also said that that it's it doesn't matter whether it's the sodium or the potassium, right? It's the combination. This is an intervention that can be implemented, at least in many places, maybe not all across the world. And it does have a benefit. So, you know, it's, it's a good, clean trial. It's pragmatic. And despite being messy, pragmatic, cluster RCT, it showed a huge clinically important benefit. Yeah, it showed a benefit. Mortality <laughs> reduction. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. It co- did. Like, like it you said, all cause mortality, right? It's, it's the best outcome. It's,
2: no, it's, big, it's a big deal. It's a, it's there a big there deal. are a lot okay. of
3: people who live in China. Like, this is a big deal
2: that's a good well and it, it's funny if you just take the three countries where they have most the salt from the salt shaker it's China India and Brazil what percentage of the world's populations live there I mean that's got to be three quarters I mean yeah yeah it's got to be I mean it's a it, that's huge yeah. It's a, so- yeah I, that's a great point that's a great point a lot of people live in China I had forgotten that uh, none of my neighbors live in China I'm not <laughs> sure if you're it. <laughs> <laughs> so you Uh, We always wrap this up. We do uh, tubular secretions. It's an opportunity for people to talk about things that they've been reading or looking at or thinking about recently. We're going to start with Swap because he always has a good one. Swap, what do you got?
3: Uh, So we are in the, I don't like to talk about COVID, but uh, we are in the sixth wave uh, in in Ontario. It's number six? Yeah, someone's keeping account. It it feels like, you know, it's been continuous. Like we have had two back-to-back Omicron waves. One of the, you know, again, silver lining is that uh, we did have access to Paxlovid. Uh, the the Pfizer Nirmatra yeah. uh, breton combination and we Christos and I have been talking bouncing ideas of each other on Twitter all the time because it's it's not recommended to use in uh, dialysis uh, but we just made up like like nothing ever has a recommendation right no one tries things in kidney patients so our patients are always excluded but we on the basis of pharmacokinetics we came up with a dose uh, so we are using a lower dose and we are giving it once a day rather than twice a day and I've had uh, I've given it to about ten patients already so far on dialysis all of them are doing well whatever that means what's the
2: toxicity that what's the toxicity that you're trying to protect against
3: exactly Just exactly not, so so it has a but very not clear. exactly there is the th- the therapeutic window is large there is no dose dependent toxicity in primates like they gave 10 times the dose and there was nothing you know maybe some transaminitis uh, headache, nausea, loss of taste, and again, maybe that was the COVID. So there is little dose-dependent toxicity, and we know that uh, if you use, uh, you know, 100 milligrams, for example, you do get therapeutic concent- trough concentrations. So that's what we are doing. The, the, got- the drug interactions are key, though. You know, it's uh, the ritonavir is. Uh, it's ritonavir, right? Yeah. Is it one
2: of the ingredients? Yeah, exactly. That stuff is nasty.
3: Yeah. So, but there is a lot of data from HIV. What you can use, what you cannot use. Yeah, um, You know, like amlodipine and uh, statins and so on. Like you have to hold those things. So it's it's not a big deal. It's, it's you have to, you know, uh, you have to look at it carefully. It's not like the monoclonals, which you can give very easily. Uh, but our problem is that the monoclonals uh, that we have don't work with the BA2. Uh, so we had to give something else.
2: Heavy shield still works with BA2 though, right? Right.
3: But it's, it's prevention. It's not treatment. But,
2: but prevention. No, no, no. I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. And um, how about clinically? Does it look any different than uh, than the previous waves? Does it look, is it? These are like, like I've I've seen various presentations have varied with the different yeah, waves. So, so, different so this var- one
3: seems more like the original Omicron, right? So there's not a lot of pneumonia. Uh, it's mostly you know people coming Initial with Omicron, uh, yeah. yeah it, people you know again frail people. All they need is being a little bit sick, having some diarrhea, feeling weak, and they go downhill. Uh, they fall or or uh, you know they get AKI. Uh, so it's that sort of stuff. It's not the uh, it's not like the delta or uh, the uh, original wave.
2: Or it, okay, or OG, OG delta, or OG uh, COVID. Okay, uh, nine. What do you got?
4: Uh, I just want to say thank you to Julia Quinn and Shonda Rhimes for only making the second season of Bridgerton eight episodes because my wife is done with them and I can watch TV again in my house.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so what are you watching? Jenny- if Bridgerton is done.
4: It just finished, so we're, we'll find out. I'll let you know next taping.
1: On a different note, a very, very different note, my tubular secretion is actually a shout out to um, Bridget Gossese at the University of Pennsylvania. I was browsing Twitter a little bit um, during our conversation just to look at other things from the chats, but then this popped up on a notification that she tweeted out that her PhD thesis is finally published in science. And the title is Inhibition of Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease in Mice by Selective Inhibition of mTOR. So there's no FDA-approved medication, but there are so many different small you know, molecule compounds and drugs that actually inhibit this pathway. So I don't know. There's potentially an MSTP student at Penn who is, who is paving the way for a solution for fatty liver disease. And that just came out tonight. Wow. <laughs>
5: basically, in that scenario, mTOR inhibitors?
1: Potentially. I mean, this is very translational. So, I mean, this is a mouse study, but the fact that there is translational potential is huge. Yeah, that's interesting. I
6: started to read that Boy, study. We... What's really cool is mTOR has like two bridges that it signals through. And this is like one of the the sensors. It's the nutrient sensor. So, Maybe you could target that piece of it. Very cool study. I didn't know you had some relation to it, but I picked it off of Twitter as well. That's where I find my my stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I don't
1: have a relationship to it except okay. that I was literally working at the next bay over <laughs> watching okay. her work on this for cool. a little bit before I left. And it's cool to see that it's finally out and that she finally was awarded her PhD and can apply to residency now, I
6: guess.
2: <laughs> that's awesome, Paul. You got something?
6: Um, well, I am a double uh University of Kansas graduate, uh, so I'm like still oh, uh, nice pumped up about uh worrying uh NCAA champion, and uh, that's all I have.
2: That's a good one, that's a good one, excellent. Josh,
0: you got something? I'm um, sure. Can I can I show for myself? Is that something I'm allowed to do here? Um, yeah, sure. Okay, so. My research assistant that I've been working with for the past year just got accepted to medical school. We're all really excited for her, and she's going to leave us for sunny Miami from snowy Boston.
2: Oh, I, I see where this is going. Which
0: means that I have an opening for a research assistant position working with the, <laughs> at the, the medical
2: center. Uh, so.
0: I don't so, know. If wait, wait,
2: So you're a research assistant at Beth Israel. Yeah. What, 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 what,
0: what, what does this person's qualifications have to so, be? I don't know if anyone listening to the podcast is not already a doctor. But if you are not already a doctor, if you've just graduated from college, if you want to live in Boston for a couple of years and learn some really cool basic science, if you want to. In an exciting division of nephrology, and get a bunch of medical mentorship that I think we can give you here. I think, or this is if a really you are cool pre-med
1: and a post back and want a letter of recommendation for medical school, come
0: yeah. And I would, I would say that so the posting is not under me; it's under my boss, Martin Pollack. So he would be able to help sign a letter of recommendation, which is going to take a lot more. And he's a big muckety muck. a letter of yeah, recommendation for me, and I'm only a single muckety. Um, (laughs) you're more of a muckety duck duck. (laughs) Um, but i think we have a really nice environment here boston's a great city we are the official hospital of the boston red sox so you can go literally across the street here and get five dollars tickets to the red sox games i promise i'll let you go um but if folks are interested with uh, in coming to work with me i'm very happy to talk to people reach out by Twitter or I'll post the listing in the in the show notes as well for the job. Okay. Okay. So, what do you got?
5: So, um is anybody uh familiar with the term OER in education? No. So, I was no. recently nominated for an award in OER and I was like, "Well, I have no idea what this is." <laughs> <laughs> and it, <laughs> and what it is, is open educational resources. And they said, well, sorry, you weren't uh, awarded this, but you're actually OER adjacent. Uh, I'm not true OER because we do a lot of FOA med. Um, and for those listening that don't know what that is, that's free open access medical education. Um, but this is basically you make stuff. And you get it licensed so other people can take it and integrate it into what they're teaching or how they're educating people. And so um, basically, we've got this whole network within the University of Colorado. And probably you guys do, too, where we we can get small grants. We can actually get paid to review. And you can turn what all these things that you've been making into other things that are also, it's another way to provide resources to others beyond what we're already doing. So I haven't quite identified how I want to integrate it, but it was a fascinating new collection of people and opportunities that maybe we haven't really been tapping or that I haven't been tapping. So I was fascinated by it. thought I'd share it with you guys.
2: Awesome. And, uh, we're recording this just a, a week after, uh, National Kidney Foundation spring clinical meeting ended. Uh, it was an outstanding meeting. Uh, Jenny and Nyan were both all over the place. They ran every session that I went to. I was like, another one by nine. Oh my God. Those guys were awesome and they put together a great meeting. I, I honestly, I, every, every lecture I went to was great. Uh, they really put together a really good thing, and and this is right up my alley because it's all clinical. There's no, there's very little or no basic science. I didn't bump into any basic science, so I was happy. And, I don't know uh, <laughs> Paul is like cringing over there. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just saying what I like. I just said that's just me, and you know, you know, I, you know. There, there was a reason Paul wasn't at NKF Spring Clinical Meeting. Like it wasn't, that wasn't a coincidence, right? Uh, but it was a, But this was our first meeting after people decided that we can ignore the uh, the uh, COVID or we can live with the COVID or what have you. And it was great seeing people. I really enjoyed it. I uh, knew I missed it, but I didn't realize how much I missed it until I was there. And I really want to uh, express a thank you uh, to Nyan for doing all the work that you guys did. Jenny, all the work that you did. It really was a good meeting. And um, I, I had a great time.
5: I can say that I actually like you guys more now that I know you in person.
0: (laughs) Half of our podcast crew had never met in person before Spring Clinical Meeting. Um, So we've done this all through Zoom. uh, And it was cool to get to see everyone in person. And I think hopefully that translates into better interpersonal vibes on the podcast or better listening experience. But regardless, we had a great time, even if you don't have a better time.
4: Well, and once you share a scorpion bowl or two amongst everybody it's hard not to like each other yeah what is it with
2: boston and these these you know collective bowls of alcohol that was bizarre there was multiple <laughs> multiple restaurants i went to that had this i was like I'm, this, this, we don't do this in detroit
1: well we do it in chicago so you guys will just have to come mo- visit chicago <laughs> at some point
3: did we shout out to uh jordi uh, oh
1: yeah her baby
3: jordi's got a oh, sorry, missing yeah. Jordy Cohen? and and she's got a baby yeah. daughter uh, lyra and she's got a twitter account as well uh, her uh, yeah l potoside little potoside oh. a little potoside a very cute name